I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. And you were listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Anthony Trollope's The Warden. Sean, Heidi, welcome back. Um, We're up against a, you know, a hard out. This episode's not going to be as long. We don't have the opportunity to be quite as uh, wandery and to be, well, I can't promise that, to be as uh, uh, loquacious as, as we'd like. The to go as long. Of- Anthony Trollope. Yeah, to go as long as we'd like. Uh, so I'm doing so well. Got a killer internet connection right now. Just loving life. She's, oh, there she's back, I think. You were frozen in a perpetual smile, though. So at least that was, oh, you know, it could have been worse. Nice. So how are you, Heidi? I'm doing great. Yeah. We're almost out of January. We we are, I believe. It's January, January 31st. 200th. But we're almost there. <laughs> almost there. Uh, and you guys, we you guys aware that it's a leap year? So there's 29 days in February this yeah. year. Were you conscious of that? Yes, I've been sitting down, pouring over calendars recently, trying to plan out the next few months of my life because it's crazy. And I yeah. did notice that. I uh, I noticed it, and I was you know became conscious of its impact, and uh, can't say that I like it. But that's a conversation for a different day. <laughs> we are here to discuss. Anthony Trollope's The Warden. And Sean, could you do a quick summary of what's in this section? Just like the the quick highlights. It doesn't have to be in depth. Sure. Because we, but I'm just going to tell you why you're thinking about that and preparing to do that. I'm going to go to my browser and uh, here on the on my on my on my uh, laptop, and I'm going to mm. open up closereads.substack.com. Closereads HQ. Oh, fascinating. And I'm going to be pulling up the comments on the most recent. Oh, there episode. were some juicy ones. Because Sean, I think I mentioned this to Heidi. Sean, we are going to do a little, a little, a new <laughs> segment that I may occasionally bring up here on the show. It's called, uh, I don't know what to call it actually, but the idea is it's letters to the editor. So we are going to share <laughs> some comments in that thread uh, and let it. people have their voice heard and maybe respond to them. Maybe Ooh. just let them float into the ether. But uh, while I'm looking those up and making sure I've got them all ready to go, why don't you give us a quick summary of what what we uh, what we all encountered right. in these chapters? The chapter titles are really helpful and indicative of what we encountered in the chapters. The first one is uh, Iphigenia or Iphigenia. Uh, Iphigenia. Robin Williams. What is uh, happening? That's Mrs. Doubtfire's first name. Do you guys remember that? Uh, yes. Uh, okay. So this is. Uh, what is happening? <laughs> what is happening? This is Eleanor uh, sacrificing herself uh, on the altar of, I don't know. Somebody else's dignity or filial love. Uh, yeah, the altar of filial love, which at the end of the chapter is is barren. So I don't know what that means. But uh, <laughs> she she prepares to go uh, engage the honor of Mister Bold in order to call off his suit, and she's determined that she will leave, uh, having sworn off his love forever. Surprise, surprise, that doesn't work. Uh, but he is. He does give his uh, his word, his promise that he will uh, attempt to uh, bring an end to the legal proceedings against the uh, the parish and, by extension, her father. Then Alas, we come to plans. Yeah, right. Then uh, we come to the the next chapter in which he visits Doctor Grantly to tell him of this intention, and man, Grantly lights him up. And says, you know what, Mr. Bold, I don't know if 
the church is done with this lawsuit yet because I think you just heard that you're going to lose, and so you're cutting bait, and I'm going to sue you for all the legal fees we can get out of you. And uh, it's one of those moments where, as unlikable as Dr. Grantley is, you somehow also relish that he's just uh, whipping this guy in the proverbial backside. But And yet also kind of start to feel um, maybe a little bit bad for Bold. Yeah, that's the moment is, where you, you start to feel a little bad for him. Oh, although man, maybe not. Maybe we can ask Heidi if she feels really, that way. <laughs> you really have to go through all that. You can tell it's a, it's a clever moment because as unlikable as, or as unsympathetic as Bold often is, and I think he'll become unsympathetic again in the following chapter, uh, you have uh, Dr. Grantley... Uh, abusing his his position and not acting the gentleman, and so I think it it allows uh, a, a moment of empathy for for Bold there. Then we get the warden's decision. Eleanor goes back to her father to tell him the good news. Uh, to him, it's not really good news because, again, just like with the legal opinion, uh, he doesn't want a legal victory. He wants a moral victory. He wants to be assured that he has done nothing wrong and that other people know it if it's true, and he's just not convinced of that. So he reveals a plan to uh, go off to London and confront the lawyers face-to-face without the knowledge or the company of his uh, son-in-law because (laughs) everybody knows why. Because uh, Then the scene shifts to London itself where Bold has arrived to convince his friend and uh, cotton-headed ninny muggins Tom <laughs> Towers. Not a fan, eh? <laughs> He's my favorite. I'm just the, kidding. The absolute colossal duty head Tom Towers <laughs> to not you, say any more spelling, bad things. How are you spelling duty right now? Oh, <laughs> oh, 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 wow. I want to leave it ambiguous. Yeah, smart. Hey, can uh, you give us one he, more way of describing him? So far we have a cotton but you said, what you said, cotton picking ninny head. You got a duty and what's well, just say ninny muggin. He's ninny the muggins. perfect marriage of duty and desire. Spelling still ambiguous. Yeah, uh, he is a, a what is the what is the Grinch one? He's a toadstool burger with arsenic sauce. Nice. That's okay. a good one. Good recall. Love there. me some. Love me some Tom Towers. Pulled right from the top of the head. What I love about Sean, he just like calls from that prodigious memory. It's like a deep well. That's right. That's right. Uh, and this is also Look where at we this get. Stuff. Isn't it neat? <laughs> Thank you for comparing my memory to Ariel's trash collection. Uh, See, that is he what got it. Feels it. Like he knew, he yep. even knew that. He knew that right yep. off the top of his That's head. That's what it feels like sometimes. Uh, and then here we get the send up also of uh, Thomas Carlyle and Charles Dickens as. Uh, Mr. Pessimist, Antikin, and Popular Sentiment. And yeah. Bold realizes that there's no... Loosely disguised. There's no putting the toothpaste back in the tube as far as his uh, future father-in-law's reputation is concerned. He's started a fire uh, that's far beyond his uh, control or ability to put out now. And he's a little sad about it. Though he still wishes he were as powerful and influential as... That uh, big bleeping Tom Towers. 
<laughs> he could go with anything, so he just inserted it. <laughs> he just put his own. He just put the word bleeping in there. Uh, so feel free to bleep that to make it sound more exotic. Yeah, uh, that was um, uh, delightful, and um, one mm-hmm. of the better summaries we've ever had. Full yeah. of uh, like just some really fun editorializing in there, Sean. Where we really <laughs> feel how you feel along yeah. with you. Yeah, no um, secret. Much like when you're hanging out with every character in this book. So um, we are here to discuss these chapters, uh, but first we have to do some letters to the editor. We really need to come up with a name for this segment, Heidi. So all right, if you can come up with something related to that. Um, yeah. Let's do this one first. This is from Ethan. And there were several questions that were uh, similar to this. Um, and we, we, you guys can respond to these if you want. They're not strictly speaking... Um, questions though so these are these are letters 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 to the editors uh letters letters yeah letters <laughs> love that so much it's all it's a little too close to letters OC. to the creditors though so that you know, I know it might cause some anxiety <laughs> yeah. yeah um all right so ethan says really enjoying the conversations in the book and i just want to say um speaking of editorializing really enjoy the positive affirmation that comes at the beginning of comments like this that are meant that are meant to be specifically disagreeable. Like a compliment sandwich. Right. I was going right. to say, exactly. in parent-teacher yeah. conferences, we call that the compliment sandwich. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm not, and I actually, I love when listeners disagree with us. It's great fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why I want to feature some of them. And these are like the kindest disagreements one could ever encounter on the internet. <laughs> right. And yet, nonetheless... we have the best community of readers. We do. And, but Ethan here, readers are amazing. He just digs right in with um, a compliment. And so, Ethan, thanks for listening. Um, he says, though, uh, it's funny how differently I have been interpreting the book. And I'm going to jump in here again with editorializing because I love when someone says, you guys are morons, but were they by saying, it's funny how differently we interpret the book. I just think that's fun. Um, Ethan's not really saying we're morons. Um, okay, so he says... Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not you. Um, it's funny how differently I've been interpreting the book. I think the melodrama and the narrator give the book an irony that I think is the whole point. I don't trust the narrator and think his conclusions and descriptions are to be read as if you were hearing the story at tea, i.e. there is a true kernel with a load of drama placed on top. It reminds me of scenes from David Copperfield where the narrator is remembering things so foolishly as to be comedic, like the scene where David is robbed by a waiter of sorts and the narrator describes him as being helpful. I think without the irony, the point of the book is somewhat lost in that it's actually about how we should read the newspaper, how we should consume secondhand stories, and how we should show sympathy for those that have been dragged into British table talk without a chance to speak up for themselves. Bold in this reading is noble per the narrator, but the foolishness of the narrator is supposed to highlight how unthoughtfully people can give motive and pick sides in the local politics. But I could be reading it into it a whole lot of things that aren't really there. Uh, so he And then he ends with that really kind flourish as if to say... <laughs> but I don't want to say that I'm I know more than you. But that's just so, my reading. This is just my reading. Yeah, yeah. Um, Heidi, well, you know what? Okay, let's do this one then from Debbie, which is um, also a response to Ethan. I also am reading and enjoying this for the irony. She says, perhaps it can also be found in the narrator's descriptions. For example, when he repeatedly calls John Bold good, could it be because of his youthful idealism and reforming spirit? And isn't that exactly how we refer to an idealistic young person today? We excuse their lack of discernment and wisdom when we perceive they have a heart for what is just. This theme, youth versus age, and the other themes of poverty and privilege, love and loss, character, property, etc., provide a background and setting for Victorian England that I find fascinating. Um, Heidi, do you want to respond to any of this? I just, I just offering you the floor. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that that is how we're supposed to read it for both of those comments. I think that's the intent from Trollope. Um, 
And I think whenever people can connect with the author's intent, that is better than not. (laughs) (laughs) Do it. (laughs) <laughs> for sure do it yes yeah um i i really do like the comments i mean both of them um absolutely that's what trollope is trying to do with bold and and so i think that that's right on and in this section i will say i i like the tom towers conversation as sean is saying is the turning point for bold it is like he's on this trajectory and he gets there and then he has to uh, choose his, he has to choose sacrificial love over ego and ambition. And um, and then that's what ends up, it seems to me that that's what's going to turn him into a true reformer, right? A righteous reformer. And so I think that that was happening all along. I just don't like to be told by authors <laughs> how to think about it instead of just letting the story do the work because the story actually got there and did the work. Mm -hmm. Um, And that actually conversation with Tom Towers is you get it, right? Um, So yes, totally agree. Check on board. Um, In terms of the irony, I think that that is right. I think that that's Trollope's. I think that that is indeed what he is doing. And at this, as, as David said in the group text this week, which you listeners don't have access to our group text. Man, you should tell see you. it. But, yeah, it's wild. <laughs> like Rome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do kind of hope it doesn't go in our biographies. I will just say that. <laughs> I, I have. Well, first of all, bio, we're getting biographies written of us. Well, Second, I mean, why would we? Of course, we're not. But if we were, yeah, I feel right. as though this is the whistleblower territory. <laughs> oh boy. Well, I mean, really, it's just us, like you know, talking about food. Yeah, yeah that's like, pretty much for it. Sure. Yeah. And then yeah. Heidi texts anyway. me about football, like, congratulations on the win. And Sean's like, what's football? Thank Stuff you. like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that is true. Um, and that's the story, and we are sticking to it. Um, <laughs> and anyway, what you said on the group text was you asked the question, like, does this book actually have a comic soul? And I think it does for sure. And you I think that, that the, it's clever. Yeah, I said that, Sean. The way, yeah, the way you said that. I gotta Sean's go find that. Attention to our Sounds group great. Text. Yeah. Sean, you're out. <laughs> Um, apparently now it's just a dialogue. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Anyway, I think that that's right. And I think that Trollope is well known and he's clever in weaving between a, a serious storyline with actual things to say. And then this very clever irony overlaid on top of it, um, that, and that the tone in which it's told, uh, and, and so I think that that is completely true. John, what were you going to say? Oh, I just found where you said that. It was right after we were talking about how Trollope died. I remember now. Yes. Well, because he died laughing. He died of the the giggles. Um, What a way to go. Yeah. So then I said, maybe we should talk about that. Now I'm scared every time I laugh. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, you can't live live your life in in fear. In fear. Thank you, Um, David. I've really learned a lot today. (laughs) (laughs) So I... I, I too agree about the irony. And so for me, it's not that he is introducing that dramatic irony or that narrative irony into the story um, or that it doesn't work all the time. The problem for me is, as you said earlier, that in doing so, he too often starts to tell me how to think or feel about what's happening instead of allowing the the, the drama to be dramatic or to be funny. 
And it, there's a fine line there, I think. And I imagine that as he wrote more books, Sean, maybe you can confirm this, that becomes that very technical skill gets refined. Yeah, I think that's right. And I don't, I mean, there, there is like a, there's a precision in the language that you have to have to be, and I'm, I'm saying this as someone who could not possibly pull it off. This is purely like the voice of a critic reader type thing who is, you know, teaching because he can't, like they say, people become teachers because they can't do the thing, right? Um, so I'm not saying that I could do better, but there is a, it is a difficult thing to be able to um, introduce that kind of dramatic irony and also not, and walk right up to the point where you've given the reader enough information and not walk over that. Yeah. Because once you walk over that line, the, the drama and the pathos can get stripped away. And for me, what happens is, and I'm going to read some things here, some comments here about melodrama. When he, in, when he, he walks too far into the, melodrama that is tied to that irony such that the melodrama becomes the point as opposed to the drama becoming the point and nobody wants just the mellow and not the drama if you part nice. i mean it's like a really yeah. way of silly way of putting it <laughs> depends but, on who you ask well true but most i don't i don't some want people that. want to leave the drama <laughs> behind and just have like, the mellow i'm using the royal we I, I, again sean it's called irony right <laughs> um so do you have anything else you want to add to this before we before I read these comments about melodrama? No, I think that's a great point about sometimes getting lost in the irony. Uh, I think that might be true of the novel because I I don't know, I don't feel the same uh, irk. I'm not irked by by him the way that you guys are so much. I don't often I don't as often feel that he's telling me how to think. And it's partly because I can never tell when the narrative voice is serious. Right. And so I think it's the same problem. I don't feel manipulated, but I I never know. Like, is this is this a joke that's supposed to kind of align with the authorial intent or the author's voice? Uh, or is this just one more kind of bit for the sake of the bit? Well, is right. that but is that a is is that Good. I don't know. I think it's a weakness. <laughs> I was uh, trying to come up with a, like a more precise way of asking the question, <laughs> but like yeah, I is, think I think it is a weakness. I but maybe a a slightly different weakness. I think it's a lack of uh, of accuracy or or discipline uh, more than it is a heavy handedness. You know, the, I think the thing that irks me to use the word you just <laughs> offered uh, is. That when I'm reading some of these scenes in this this section in particular, the the dilemmas themselves actually are are um, things that I appreciate that he's offering yeah. to us. Yeah, like when Bold goes there and he's he the girl that he loves convinces him to leave her father alone and stop bothering, and then he goes and he realizes he's started a fire that he can't put out, and um and then maybe and then he realizes oh actually maybe I could have you know, this could make my name and he's going through this, all these dilemmas. I think there is some actual dramatic tension there. That's, that's yeah. worth exploring. And her love for her father as a dilemma, as a, like in and of itself, I find compelling and, and his Harding's moral questions about wanting to be not just legally right, not to just be able to get off the hook from, you know, from a legal perspective, but also to know within his soul that he wasn't doing the wrong thing. And if he was to be able to rectify that, right. that's all really compelling. And so for me, when he pours in all the melodrama around that, it 
it takes me out of those dramatic dilemmas just enough to make me feel like I'm not able to linger in those dilemmas enough. Yeah. And so I'm not, you know, by no means am I saying this is like a bad book or anything. Like, that's not what I'm saying. It's just that that's how, as a reader, that that's where, you know, that's where I think he doesn't allow us to hang out in that, those dramatic dilemmas and in those yeah, in moments of indecision long enough to really feel them in the way that he wants us to feel them. Um, and I understand that he is also making a commentary on Dickens and stuff like that, but it feels a little bit like he's, you know, the satirization that he's offering is uh, is just a little imprecise for what he's trying to accomplish. Um, but we're not going to only talk negatively about this book. Um, <laughs> let's just address um, a couple questions here about the melodrama um, because I think they're fair. Uh, Lily says, maybe I'm not reading the story correctly. Again, people are so nice, you know, <laughs> oh. and maybe taking it upon yourself. It's, it's, it's a very kind way of beginning the comment. Um, in my, but in my opinion, the melodrama isn't as big of a deal. Mr. Harding is not shattered over the loss of his living or job, but over being perceived as being corrupt. He's lived his whole life believing he is moral and good, but is now questioning the ethics of the situation. What makes this more complicated is the fact that everyone around him is also questioning his virtue, which creates both internal and external pressure. On the same hand, I think Eleanor's melodrama is not necessarily over the loss of a living, but over the effect this is having on her father. So I think the question is more of what Mr. Harding and Eleanor are reacting to. If they're reacting this way to the loss of income and position, it is over the top. But if they're struggling through issues of identity and self-worth, I believe they're justified. But maybe this is my Enneagram for wing talking. Also, I've only read up to chapter 11, so maybe future chapters will illuminate this further. Uh, and then Elizabeth says, it, um, what a great conversation. Again, beginning with a nice comment. Um, it's making me consider how unique the Victorian novel is with its melodrama, outsized emotions, outsized situations. Uh, it's narrative voice and the way it approaches duty versus desire. I just finished reading The Mill on the Floss by George Eliot, and she does the oh, same thing yeah. that Trollope does with John Bold with one of her uh, unlikable characters. This is an early Trollope novel, so Trollope's craft improves. Two of Grantley's children have roles in subsequent Barsetshire novels. Um he also seems to have forgotten about two of the other children in the subsequent novels, LOL. <laughs> I think the conversation at the end of the podcast about what the characters want and how duty plays into the story is fascinating. It made me think that Mr. Harding's conscience is really the moral center of the novel more than the narrator's opinions. Harding has a regard for both John Bold and Archdeacon Grantly. I don't think we necessarily have to like those characters like Mr. Harding does, but I think that we have to take seriously the strength of character in Mr. Harding that enables him to like and sometimes forbear with two such different men. Um, Heidi, anything you want to uh, respond to? These? No, I that's think great. that's really insightful, especially the, um, I mean, the whole comment's very insightful and true. And I think that that is like, so everything you're saying there is woven into the novel. Um, and I, I particularly liked the distinction between the narrator's voice and the moral center of the novel yeah, being yeah, Mr. Harding's conscience. I think that that's exactly right. Yeah. And maybe by part of the point, I think, is the dissonance that it creates between the two for the reader. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that for him, for Mr. Harding, his conscience is the moral center, but his courage is his weak point. And so he has to develop that over the course of wrestling through it. Right. Yeah. And I think it's pretty uh, courageous and risky for an author to put a character with a lack of courage as the hero or the most wrote character in a novel. I've actually don't think I've ever seen that done before. Usually it's a rash character, like a, like a 
It's going to rein in their courage somehow. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And direct it, like orient it towards its rightful object and all that kind of stuff. But for someone who is prone to cowardice to be this protagonist is, I, I can't think of another novel that does that. I'm sure maybe I have read one, but I just can't think of one. And if I have, it's not that memorable. Um, So, I mean, there's plenty of characters in novels that need to develop courage, but usually those people are more on the sideline, right? Like I'm thinking of like Neville and Harry Potter. Like he's not, <laughs> he's not at the center of the novel, but he's a compelling and endearing and wonderful character. Right. He does have to grow in the virtue of courage, but to put Mr. Harding is his conscience at the center, but his courage is lacking that I think has created a bit of a dissonance and I've had to get used to it over the course of the novel. Yeah. And of course, and now I am. And of course for you and I, we're reading this for the first time. And so some of these mm-hmm. dissonances that it's created are things that we're like trying to experience and interpret in real time. <laughs> um, yeah. And then there's people like Sean who have read this book before and, and like it and have no kind of know what to expect. All right. One yeah. final letter mm-hmm. to the editor. Um, and again, we need to come up with a, uh, we need a listener to send in a letter to the editor with a better name than letter to the editor. But here's a question, or here's a comment from Ed Franklin, who says, Ed. "So I enjoyed the warden just fine, but I still feel the need to defend Sean a bit. Wasn't his pick for the year of Viper's Tangle?" And the answer, the answer to that is yes, it it, yes. it was, and we did realize that after the fact, and uh, we should publicly Forgive apologize us. for for that. Please Sean. accept our apology. Yeah. I'm going to withdraw myself from the role of podcaster because of my moral failure. I'm just kidding. I'm not doing that. I I think you guys have started a fire that you can't put out now. It's really gotten, it's gotten beyond you. My reputation is ruined. Right. Right. Sean, your reputation as somebody who recommends Trollope books. I mean, what's the reputation? But I am taking the music with me. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, you're right, Ed. Thank you for calling us out. We realized that later. Yeah. Yeah. What the funniest part to me was that, I too also forgot that. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> you really had me fact. convinced that. Oh yeah I, yeah, I guess I did pick this one. Gosh, man. Well, but because thing. we care so much about the book list, we put our heart and soul into That's it. That's right. Yeah, so I feel not like sure I picked them which all. Which ones were enmeshed with? Yeah, the right. end. I fought and for I'll, the road as hard as I fought for the ward and as hard as I fought for the Viper's thing. That was true. Actually, that was an uphill battle. And maybe that's that wasn't it. just a road. That was like a yeah. Wait until we talk to, about it. I didn't have to fight for Viper's Tangle, so it's not the choice isn't as memorable as the ones that I felt like I had to. So uh, really fight for. But but Sean, here's the thing. All of the books that you choose basically are about some sort of rector going through it's an intellectual and spiritual dilemma. <laughs> so it does make Is sense that, true that the war... Viper's Tangle. Well, I don't Is know. It the no. Viper's Tangle like the wasteland of the modern world or something? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I'm excited. Yeah, no, but in, in some ways it is still just like a Graham Green novel by a French guy. Well, that's Can't fine. Yeah. So what yeah. um we, last year's book was uh, Diary of a Country Priest, which is about a yeah, oh, yeah, you know, about a minister. Was that my pick last year? No, mine was yeah. Candidate for Leibowitz. Okay, well, either way, also about someone. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> about someone. Same. In yeah, 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 just a little bit more at stake <clears throat> there. The world. Um, is is Moriak is Viper Stangle about a? Minister, it's, it's like a no, no. It's right? a, it's a. Uh, he's a rich atheist who's dying. Oh, oh, Ooh, that's great. Yeah, good job. You are oh, on the other side. Right? Total opposite. The, the mean. <laughs> Not here. a poor priest. <laughs> a poor priest with spiritual dilemmas. Yeah, a rich, a rich atheist, atheist who's with spiritual know. dilemmas. Okay, so 
let's talk about um uh, just logan you might need to get the um the button ready the dump Uh-oh. button the bleep button Here we go because Sean warned us before we started recording that um, he wants to talk about Tom to the Tom Towers chapter, and he he seemed like he was worried that he might say things he was would regret. I think I did um, okay so far, though. Um, yeah. Why don't you just go ahead and and di- dig in and just tell us why you feel like you need to say uh, naughty words um, well, in relation I, I really to the Tom want... Tower chapter? Even though I said we weren't going to say too many more negative things about the book. Well, it's I mean it's it's a positive accomplishment of the book that yeah right. that it can make us hate Tom Towers. Hate the character, yeah. Yeah, as we do. Yeah. Uh is I mean, am I am I right? You guys don't surely, right? You don't like Tom Towers. No, no, I'm you a Christian. Really? You don't yeah, good, please, good answer. please say good answer. Answer. <laughs> Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, I mean he's just there's no there's really no ambiguity. I don't know if there's even that much to say. It's so clear. He's just a terrible human being, <laughs> uh, yeah. who who thinks he's thinks he's great, uh, but in in reality, he doesn't have a lot of courage. He's really like the social media terrorist, exactly, <laughs> who, who loves the yes. anonymity of being removed from his opinions, and yet he can just uh, destroy lives overnight without remorse. Yeah, he's, he's a terrible fellow. And he lives in exactly the kind of uh, gaudy comfort that he is uh, you know, criticizing other people for stealing for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and this this section of the novel really highlights the social dilemmas. Yes, yeah, uh, that are um, that are at the heart of like kind of these widespread and pervasive social issues uh, that are being played out in the drama of individual particular people, right. and that's. Um, we have we have gone from the particular and more into the general here. Um, and Tom Towers does represent the corruption and hypocrisy uh, of of a media conglomerate, which yeah. what's more relevant <laughs> to today than that? Like this is enduringly relevant. Um, and there's so many of the issues that are highlighted and brought to the surface in this novel that we 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 can relate to not just imaginatively, but quite directly. Yeah. 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 There's you have bold who who can r- think better of uh, repent of uh, a particular action or choice, but then a level up, right? If it were just if it were just an interpersonal conflict, bold's change of heart would end it. But yes, it has it has now gone a level up, and there is yeah, as you said, there's an, a, yeah, a, a larger entity, a conglomerate that stands to benefit in a material way. From perpetuating the the conflict and the uh, controversy, and you can imagine that there's all those people out there in the world who, like modern users of social media, are encountering news like this and becoming addicted to the the dopamine hit that is the sullying of someone's reputation. And oh uh, yeah, you know, for a just for what is ostensibly or theoretically a just cause. Right, and feeling feeling justified then in just absolutely hating this human that they really don't know or know anything about. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, what do you make then of the narrator? This is a fascinating narrator section. Yeah. Of him or her, but him. Um, or her or she. 
or it's it. It's definitely a him. Uh, well, why is that, Heidi? <laughs> this novel, man, it's a him. Not, not, a, not a female narrator? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, again, the dog. Right. Yeah. Right. This, um, so what do you make of the narrator's interpretation or sense of the veracity of the information that Tom Towers, the way he writes about the, uh, you know, the, the Jupiter as being, you know, Mount Olympus and never being wrong and stuff like that is hard. The, the, the problem is that sometimes he is the irony. It, it's like so on the nose and sort of dripping with sarcasm but I don't know. I'm having a hard time interpreting exactly whether how how um, Trollope wants us to think about the sarcastic nature of this of that chapter preceding their conversation, where it spends seven pages basically telling us that the Jupiter has all the wisdom of the ages and yeah. is basically the church. You know, it's presenting it as a sort of uh, secular, mm. um, like. Fount of knowledge. Um, yeah, fount of knowledge yeah. or yeah. cathedral. I mean, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he specifically uses like allusions to the pagan gods and things like that. But what I can't tell is, well, let me just leave it there. What do you guys think about that? Well, yeah, you yeah, mean, I mean, oh, go ahead. Well, just uh, the degree to uh, which it's mockery and the degree to which it's meant to represent a sort of self view that Tom Towers possesses. No, I think he's asking, like, it's so on the nose. Is it too on the nose? Like, are we supposed to kind of come back to a certain kind of center? Or like, yeah, is he pendulums, okay. right? Like, yeah, is there, is um, there a, a, a is virtuous it, mean somewhere? Is it somewhere too much? Yeah. Is it too much? And not just too much that, is there, does Trollope know that he's laying it on too thick for yeah. some purpose of his own? Yeah. Is, I think, the question, right, David? Yeah, yeah. basically. And so then how are we supposed yeah. to read? I mean, because if that's the case... And it does sort of change the way you interpret. Like this is one of those scenes where he's that this it's just so sarcastic, yeah. or the narrator really believes it. And those are the only two options. Yeah, I think that's right. So I think this is this is a pretty classic example of bathos, like the mock epic tone that's meant to be cynical. Uh, uh, Pope and Swift kind of mastered this the generation before and uh yeah i think it's meant to to sweep in here and undercut the thing that's being so described okay, i think so, there's i think it's an i think he's operating in an existing mode i totally agree with that i think that's right so if that's the case then which i agree with my question then is is he altering the nature of the book by introducing that or is he suggesting that the whole book is according to that mode has have we have we always been dealing with a narrator who's in that mode, or is this an an aside, a mode think, passageway? Yeah, we have been dealing with a narrator that sometimes is really subtle with the irony, and sometimes is really almost like domestic with it. Yeah, um, and and then kind of zooming out to make this grand social commentary in this bathos mode, um, and. Sean, do you agree with that? Do you think that's right? Yeah, I do. And I think he I think he scales it up here. I, mm-hmm. I, really, if we look back, I think he does similar things with characters like Dr. Grantley. But I think he scales it up here because the things being satirized here 
have such an egregiously inflated view of themselves uh, that that Tom Towers has a far more hubristic view of himself than Dr. Grantley, uh, and that the the tone, uh, the hyperbole, then is also ramped up to match that. So I think there's a kind of consistency in the way that the narrative voice uh, deals with these these figures or ideas. Right, because I think here the narrative voice in that particular chapter is intended to set the tone for Tom Towers as a character as yeah. much as it is as a social commentary in itself. Um, because then when we get to Tom Towers, we know that this is a man who believes literally everything that was just skewered by the narrator. Right. Yeah, right, right. Hmm. It's like you. It's like somebody who reads The Great Gatsby and comes out of it thinking that that what it's doing is making heroes out of the fools. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But that's yeah. not when you're. Just, that's just called bad reading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you look right. at uh, Bathos or is it is it is that how you say bathos mm-hmm. the, let's see here i was looking up the definition uh, bathos has come to refer to rhetorical anticlimax an abrupt transition from a lofty style or grand topic to a common or vulgar one occurring either accidentally through artistic ineptitude or intentionally for comic effect intentional bathos appears in satirical genres such as burlesque and mock epic bathos or bathetic is also used for similar effects in other branches of the arts such as musical passages marked uh, re- uh, marked ridiculosamente, and in film, bathos may appear in a contrast cut intended for comic relief or to be produced by an accidental jump cut. Okay, so all that's interesting context, but what I want to ask about is the question of um, occurring either accidentally through artistic ineptitude or intentionally for comic effect. And I'm not asking you something about whether Trollope was accidentally you know, does this accidentally versus intentionally, as opposed to how we're supposed to interpret the narrator. Is the narrator, do we think, being comic, or does the narrator have this sort of accidental accidental approach to to this? In other words, are we supposed to, is this supposed to reshape how we think about all the wisdom of the narrator throughout the whole book? Because if so, then it's like a, it's a huge, not just a huge plot turning point, but a huge turning point in how we interpret and think about the ideas of the book in terms of what's presented in between the scenes and through the, through the wandering thought bubbles of the narrator. Sean, what do you think about this? Uh, I, my opinion or maybe it doesn't is matter. That, well, maybe it doesn't matter. Although I don't know the, your other option does seem like it has some heavy implications. I think I think the the narrator is being comical here. I don't think we're meant uh, we're meant to think about the narrator as as sincerely sharing the the view of Tom Towers that Tom Towers has of himself. That yeah, would be that yeah. would be disturbing. <laughs> oh yeah, I agree, and I think also this whole thing sets up. It is about. Tom Towers, but Tom Towers is a foil for John Bold here. Right. Like he is, he's the the big bad wolf. And um, and he is, and John Bold is here to face him. And we know we like we're literally told in the narrative that 
John Bold by choosing Eleanor and by dropping the suit is closing the door on his ambition to become a person like Tom Towers. Right. And But he wants to do it for good, right? Like he's going to become this social reformer and have this voice um, to advance justice uh, in uh, for the poor and this unjust world. Um, and, and so he has, you know, a heart of gold in doing so. Um, and then Tom Towers is to us, like we get to see this is the man that John Bold would become, Without the intervention of this humble young maiden who has come to, you know, guide him back to the right path and to defend her meek and long-suffering father. Um, but everything in him wants, still wants to be Tom Towers. Like, he's not choosing it because he's heroically understands that his soul is at stake right. here. He's doing it for love of this girl. And that is, I think, another kind of way that the novel is trying to redefine heroism. Part, partly through the like meek and the meekness, which is kind of weakness in Mr. Harding. And then also John Bold, who is in very great danger of becoming an insufferable jerk like Tom Towers. Yeah. What were some of the words um, that Sean used to describe him? He's, he he's coming a close to that. ninny muggins, right? That's like yeah, he right. is at the, on the threshold, if we wins this suit, we see in this section, this is who he will become. Yeah. And, he's going to become a bleeping. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we kind of need, we, and Tom Towers' words are, I mean, we'd be able to see the hypocrisy of Tom Towers either way. We would see that he is actually a small-souled person. Um, but with the help of, I think what Trollope is trying to, is trying to give us this contrast um, between the way that this media conglomerate sees itself versus what a true hero is. Um, and in doing so, he has this big Victorian, like, and, like, and style. Uh, but I, 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 I think I see what he's trying to do with it. Sean, do you think that in presenting these modes, Trollope is also comment, and, and also the way he sends up Dickens and these other writers and things like that, he is offering a commentary on that sort of on on the nature of storytelling in general. And so you've got he's offering bathos, and he knows he's dealing, he's trading in pathos, he which of course way is way more a, conservative than this. David, he to yeah. me, he does not seem like he's trying to advance anything new. He seems like he's operating entirely within. The Trollope. literary tradition, yes, though, of his time. Though he is, I don't see him playing with it. But maybe Sean does. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that he's playing with the style here. Uh, I mean, his the way that he comments on uh, storytelling. I think we get a good example of in the last chapter that we read. All right, he's he satirizes Dickens' novel. All uh, right, he he inserts yeah, a, right. a fictional Dickens novel into his novel. Uh, I think that's that's his approach to commenting on storytelling and the use of storytelling. Uh, right. I don't think I don't think he's doing that through the style that he's adopting. And I think he's trying to like wink at us. It's just that sometimes right. we don't really get it because we're not a man of we're not men of his time. That's exactly I'm not a man right. I think all, that's right. But, like, <laughs> but we don't. There's some little like winks I think he's giving to his audience that I just don't get because I'm not. They're kind of like culturally baser yeah. of his time. 
Have you ever considered the notion that you might have you had you been born in a different era have been a man? Sean, if you had been born in a different era, it could have been could have been a woman. He's still Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Well, you know, you can really look at this right now with all the filters. Like Lucy showed me a picture of herself. Watch, she downloaded one of those apps that turns her into a boy. So she showed me, she's like, this is what I would look like if I was a boy. You know, you probably so, should not allow her to download apps. I did not allow her to download that app. That was an immediate, oh I did God. laugh at the picture and then I made her delete the right. app. You laugh for a moment and then realize. Yeah. But, apparently, <laughs> but anyway, I'm saying that yeah. because all that to say, <laughs> you too can imagine yourself as a woman, David Kern, if you want wow. to sell your information on the internet. China, <laughs> oh, right. Well, yeah. which I'm doing all the time anyway. So why, yeah. why not find out what I'd look like as a woman too? Um. Uh, wow, I don't know where exactly where we are, but should we talk about yeah. Charles Dickens at all? Holy cow. We've never Might done well. Dickens on the show. And, um, Sean, are you a Dickens? I, Dickensie, are you a Dickens head? You know, Dickensiac. I, I gave Dickens the Dickens in my uh, Five Reasons Why I Should Read the Warden. But yeah, you I, did, didn't you? I do, I do appreciate, I'm not going to say I appreciate some Dickens because I think that that's not fair. I appreciate Dickens sometimes. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that I do like about Dickens. Uh, I even sometimes the the heavy-handed stuff. I love uh, Pickwick Papers. I think that the Tale of Two Cities is really great. Uh, there are there are things about every Dickens novel, even that I think are really masterfully done. I uh, I do like Dickens. So should we take seriously the criticisms of? Trawl up on Dickens. Oh, yes. That, though, yeah. I definitely think. Yeah, 100%. Say more. <laughs> oh, I just... <laughs> now I that think you said that yes. <laughs> I think that he is... Um, he's satirizing so many forms of activism in, in this Trollopis, novel. not Dickens. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. And in these chapters in particular. Uh, and so he, he's got Bold, who is the sort of... Uh, naive, youthful reformer. Uh, he's got Thomas Carlyle, who was an, uh, another contemporary of Dickens, uh, mostly a, a social critic and historian, that uh, started out, he says, as uh, you know, this helpful voice who became just a universal cynic, uh, a, yeah. an absolute yeah. misanthrope. <laughs> yeah, uh, he stopped hating. Very he stopped thinly hating veiled in this book. Yeah, that's right. He stopped hating and the by evils. By that, I mean not veiled at all. And mankind and just uh, started thinking that everything was evil and, and hating everything. Yeah, he fell into uh, Victorian nihilism. Right. Uh, and then you've got Dickens, who he accuses of uh, a, a kind of sensationalized activism through through his fiction, which is he accuses him of being very heavy-handed. Uh primarily in the way that he exaggerates the goodness and the the wickedness of his characters and uh, denies or obscures the fact that uh, very rarely are are the virtues and vices unalloyed or un, unmixed in in real human beings right yeah yeah and then he says that that reforms that have been sparked by Dickens writings uh, had very little to do with the actual cases that that were being you know, dealt with or reformed and were bi- based on caricatures. Yeah. Heidi, do you, 
Yeah, I think that that's right. It's, I think we can see some similarities in style between Trollope and Dickens, but not in mindset or intent. Like they're not, they're writing for very different reasons on opposing sides, but reading Dick, reading Trollope sometimes feels like reading Dickens. Right. Yeah. I think that's well said. And I guess that, you know, maybe that's like saying, oh, if you read, you know, who, who Hemingway, big, yeah, I mean, if you, yeah, yeah if people you, and, from their era. Evil and Wah, right? Yeah. Like yeah. they're very different mindsets, very different purposes, very different. They're setting out to do different things, but reading a modern novel is like meeting a modern novel. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you appreciate, Heidi, this criticism of, like, how do you feel about this criticism that Trollope is introducing? Um, of Dickens, of Dickens and the and, reforming and you, spirit of the Victorians. I mean, yeah. we've been a little mm-hmm. complaining about parts of this book are critical. Right. And what I'm trying to decide is, is the heavy handedness of the book sometimes actually helpful in what he's trying to do here in terms of complaining or criticizing Dickens? Well, I or mean, is he just this, doing what yeah. Dickens does to Dickens? This many, you know, 150 years later or whatever, it's kind of nice to know what the author is doing when we don't know the spirit of his time, right? Like, yeah. and and that is something you can always get from a Victorian novelist. And I, it probably <laughs> isn't going to be any kind of secret to our listeners at this point that that's neither yours nor my favorite era of literature to read. Um, yeah. so well, we've kind of been on the record like, about Dickens. We're not like veiling. <laughs> yeah, not being our, our favorite. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, Next year, I'm going to pick Dickens. We, that'll that'll be the coup that right there. That has been yeah. an ongoing well, attempt. Like, so there's been <laughs> there's gonna there's a movement going on. I'm on, I'm happy Dickens to do Dickens. The, the biggest problem is the length of the Dickens novels. Yeah. I'll read Christmas Carol. I love a Christmas Carol. That's true. Yeah, there you go. It's very I, I, very heavy handed. Really, on the I social think activism. I think Tale of Two Cities is one of his best, and it's of a, a moderate length too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. Two yeah. Cities is beautiful. And yeah. the whole, there a lot of David Copperfield is great, like objectively great. Yes, yeah, there's yeah, just yeah. a lot of David Copperfield. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there sure is. So I I think that I, I, to like zoom out from your question, even about the social commentary, I think I can say I appreciate, um, I, there's a lot I appreciate and value about, um, about the Victorian novelists. Like I'm not, I don't think they're objectively bad just because they're not my favorite. But if I'm going to pick up and read a novel, like it's going to take the podcast to get me to, to read Trollope <laughs> or Dickens. Yeah. <laughs> but that's enough. not true for everybody. And many of our listeners love those novels. Yeah, yeah. There's And and so that, that, it's not a value judgment per se, and I'm happy to read them, and I'm happy to find what I appreciate about them. It's just not my favorite style right. or genre yeah, like when era I, of the novel. When I think about Dickens, I'm well aware of the reputation that he has among popularly and among the the intelligentsia, so to speak. Um, and that it's a that it's a personal thing. I mean, I think you can have a conversation. I'm glad where that can... he existed and contributed to the literary tradition. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, I think that you can, I think that you can also look at great books and you can say, well. I don't know books are perfect. I mean, I think you can have a con a conversation about what the masters could have done differently without it being that you are uh, a pompous bleep. Um, but you can also 
you also have to be aware, like they have a reputation. This is my, this is a taste question. So when I say, right. I don't love Dickens, I'm fully aware of saying that that's a taste question. It's not a question of, um, like I'm not necessarily, I'm not, when I make that claim, I'm not making a merit claim or like a value judgment. I'm making a confession. <laughs> um, Heidi, I know you need to go. Do you want to offer any final thoughts? It's 5.28 uh, p.m. Eastern time and you have a hard out in one minute and 30 seconds. I sure do. Um, I No, I don't think I have any final thoughts. I read ahead and there's a couple of scenes coming up that I just like really liked. So I want to just put that out there. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> You felt the need to just like yes. <laughs> express a positive, a positivism. And I've said a lot of positive things today, but there's a couple of the scenes that I was like, I objectively like really like this and I'm enjoying it and I'm in the drama and it's, it's, and I was chuckling out loud. So yeah, there nice. we go. And I'll say what they are next week. Great. Sean, any final thoughts from you? Yes. Uh, in a, in a spare moment here, I googled Victorian insults. Oh, awesome. and I and I it's just really exciting. I just want to say that I think Tom Towers is both a pigeon-livered rat bag and honestly a hedge-creeping whooper up. So well, I agree. Uh, yeah, that going, is so going right that on is the record. The juste. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I definitely am going to be using some of these. Where's my notebook? <laughs> what, is a, what was that last one? Whooper up? A whooper up. Yeah. A Why don't we up. use that? Can we bring uh, that back? Yeah, I think we absolutely should. Oh, I, I like that. I don't know what it means, but I just, I feel like I know what it means without knowing what it means. And I like it. It's, it's apparently, ideally, it's uh, it's connotation or it's denotation rather has to do with singing. A second rate singer who produces noise rather than music. Hmm. For example, get that whooper up belting Celine Dion off the stage. It's our turn to sing No Diggity. <laughs> wow. I'm going to need you to put that in your collection and remember it. And yeah, no pull kidding. it out at appropriate times. Oh, I will. When yeah. is there an inappropriate time to use that? Right? Because I'm not being a creeping whooper up. Yeah. Oh, good work, Sean. I am <laughs> going to be doing some Googling now. Let's just it's say right. that. Five out of five. Would recommend. <laughs> Well, uh, thanks to everyone who is uh, who's listening, and uh, you are not insert. You're not a vasey mumbling cove. You're not fop doodles or driggle draggles. Don't even worry about it. None of you. Maybe a couple of you are. Holy cow! You know who you are. You're not fustalugs or. Uh, that's a good one too. Or gilly wet foots, although maybe you are because that's just an old Scots word for a swindling businessman or someone who gets into debt and then flees. Uh, hey, but if you are, quit it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Repent. Uh, you're not Gobermouch. You know what that is? No. It's an old Irish word for a nosy, prying person who likes to interfere in other people's business. Much like Tom Tower. Ooh, I know a couple of those. <laughs> did you just Google old Irish insults? Nope. Nope. Did not. Uh, now, Down an internet Sean, rabbit hole now. Sean, I, after listening to this episode, though, I am a little, or listening to you during this episode, I'm a oh, little yeah. concerned that you uh, might be drifting a bit too close to a muck spout. Mm, Which is a yeah. dialect word What's for that? someone who not only talks a lot, but who seems to constantly swear. <laughs> Uh-oh. So, avoid that, Sean. Avoid I will that. pray for you. Yeah, please do. Yeah, please <laughs> please pray for, for him. Uh, and uh, that's the end of this episode. Because uh, Heidi needs to go. And uh, she, end on a high is, note. she is... You want me to end on a high note? 
Or you know, I think we were ending on a high note. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like a whooper up note. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The very opposite. Uh, And because we are not, um, we are not ragabrash. Uh, we will end this episode as one uh, as one does properly. So for, <laughs> for <laughs> Heidi White and Sean Johnson, I'm David Kern. Until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.